This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Let me begin by talking, telling you the story of AIDS. Um, it's a story, but this is true. Um, AIDS begins in the Congo in the 1920s when a virus that had chronically infected a variety of different apes for millennia jumped to humans. Um, We think this probably occurred when uh, villagers during a periodic famine were desperate enough to try and uh, hunt and kill chimpanzees and uh, with spears and knives, and the chimpanzees fought back, and chimpanzee blood um, came into contact with open wounds. And the virus that they had, the chimpanzees, had um, lived with for millennia, which we now call simian, simian immunodeficiency virus, um, infected people, Uh, It was sexually transmitted to other people, and it evolved over decades into the virus that we now call human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV. There were probably cases of of AIDS in Central Africa, but they were not diagnosed. People uh, didn't realize what was going on. There was very little medical care there. Uh, But the virus moved out of the Congo across Africa in the 1960s when there was increased trucking transportation across Central and East Africa and growing numbers of sex workers at truck stops. And I think you can connect the rest of the dots. Uh, HIV also moved bisexual transmission from Africa to the Caribbean, primarily Haiti, during that period of time. In the 1970s, we now know that HIV moved to the United States, and there were some sporadic cases of people who died of immunodeficiency, but it was one person, and nobody knew why, and things happen. Uh, And you don't always have an answer for every single uh, disease that people have. Fortunately for us, there were researchers who were making great strides in understanding the class of virus that HIV and the simian type of virus um, uh, belong to. They're called retroviruses. They have a very unique way to replicate themselves. It's very different from other viruses. And uh, it was kind of an esoteric topic because uh, it really only caused disease in animals, at least that, that there were a couple of... Um, rare diseases in humans that were proven to be caused by retroviruses in the uh, in the 1970s. Then, in the very late 70s, there began to be seen cases of um, gay men who were previously healthy, who had profound immunodeficiency, and had a kind of pneumonia, pneumocystis pneumonia, that just wasn't seen in people who had healthy immune systems, as well as a rare cancer, Kaposi sarcoma, in primarily in San Francisco, L.A., 
in New York City. The Centers for Disease Control was alerted, and they put together a series of five cases among gay men in Los Angeles and published this to alert the medical world in 1981, in June of 1981. Uh, by the end of that year, there were 270 um, cases that had been reported to the CDC of this syndrome, which at that point in time was called gay-related immune deficiency because it only had been observed in, in gay men. The same syndrome the next year was identified in heterosexual people, um, partners of injection drug users, um, heterosexual Haitians, and some recipients of, of uh, transfused blood. Um, the, and the name of the syndrome then was changed from gay-related to acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, AIDS. Um, the virus, ultimately called HIV, was isolated from AIDS patients and proven to be the cause of AIDS in 1983. Uh, and and it, was, it took that long before cases uh, of AIDS were actually recognized in Africa. Um, uh, in Africans. Actually, these were Africans who were in Belgium. Um, um, and at that same time, there was the beginning of activism in groups of gay men um, in San Francisco and New York City joined together to advocate for better medical treatment and against stigma. Uh, a year after that, there was a diagnostic blood test available and we could begin to test donated blood and screen out blood that was infected with the AIDS virus. Um, and, and people could find out if they were infected, people who were at risk. Um, there was still no government action, and the President of the United States absolutely never mentioned this word, AIDS, even though at this point there were several thousand people with the syndrome, and it, it qualified as an epidemic until a close family friend, uh, a very famous Hollywood movie star, Rock Hudson, was outed as having AIDS shortly before he died of the disease. Then Reagan began to talk about AIDS, and the National Institute of Health, NIH, began to step up funding. A uh, year after that, a pharmaceutical company, which had a potential antiretroviral drug, AZT, um, uh, completed a study that showed clinical effectiveness. People um, um, live longer. It was fairly dramatic in this short-term study. And uh, within six months, uh, the drug was widely available to clinicians like me to treat patients, even though it hadn't been formally approved by the FDA. Um, and I think this was in part a result uh, of uh, activist pressure. And then we entered kind of a bad, dark period where there was progress, but there wasn't impact on, on death rates. Uh, there wasn't impact on the epidemic growth. Um, from 1988 to 1996, new drugs were developed, but they would only work briefly for a while, maybe up to a year. And then in 1996, the nickel drop for everybody. And we realized if we combine certain combinations of three drugs, people will be not cured, but they'll have the virus um, replication control stopped, and their immune systems can recover, and they won't be sick. 
So where we are with AIDS right now is that there are approximately 37 million people on the planet um, living with HIV. There were um, 2 million new infections the last year for which we have good data, and a million deaths from AIDS that same year, 2015. There have been 36 million people, and that is a low estimate, um, who've died of AIDS since the beginning of the epidemic. And that exceeds the number of all military deaths in World War I and World War II combined. So this truly has been a catastrophic disease. My book is about a physician perspective uh, at the beginning of the, of the AIDS epidemic. So I just want to briefly give you a sense of what the uh, unique issues were that challenged us um, as the epidemic unfolded, specifically here in San Francisco in the 1980s. At, 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 the, at the very beginning, and I was an intern when this happened, um, we were, we were uh, trying to manage a fatal disease that was as mysterious to us as the bubonic plague was in medieval Europe. It truly was. I had to manage a, a patient as an intern in the ICU for a month in the hospital where I was training um, in November of the year that this case report uh, was published by the CDC. And we had no idea what was going on, how this person got sick, whether there was a transmissible agent, anything. It was uh, unusual in medicine to not have any idea. Activist demands had never occurred before in the, in the in the, probably in the history of medicine, to my knowledge, where groups of people who were affected by a specific disease pushed back to pharmaceutical companies, government regulatory agencies, and said, no, you have to do this. You have to make things happen uh, faster. In the history of medicine, there have been many times when doctors had to face the potential risk of getting sick themselves from exposure to patients who had disease. Um, so that wasn't really unique, except that when, um, when I went to medical school, people were beginning to think that we were at the end of the era of infectious diseases, that there weren't going to be a lot of deaths or illness in the future from, from infections. It was, was going to be about cancer and heart disease and diabetes, et cetera. So that was a bit of a surprise. But I think that the... Um, the major uh, issue that um, was really unique in our, our century was coping with young people uh, who were dying on a massive scale. So, um, and this is a picture of the uh, AIDS quilt, by the way. The AIDS quilt is the largest piece of folk art ever made on the planet. It consists of 50,000 individual quilt pieces and this, this was a very famous um, exhibition in Washington, D.C., um, maybe a decade, 15 years ago. And this project was actually started by a San Franciscan, uh, Cleve Jones, uh, who's rec recently written a fantastic book about his experiences. He was an early activist. So each of these panels is three by six feet in dimensions, which is the size of a coffin. And this gives you some sense of magnitude. So how did this make us feel? People who are on the front line, nurses and doctors. 
Well, we were helpless at the beginning. We had no idea what to do other than treat the complications. If somebody had pneumocystis pneumonia, we knew some antibiotics that would help them, but it just bought them some time, not, and not a lot. Um, we, there were, how did we feel about the activists? Well, we, we shared their anger at the government. The government wasn't doing anything. But in the first four or five years of the epidemic, we were often the targets of their anger. And so we were defensive. We feared for our safety, um, understandably. But I think the most powerful emotion for us was guilt and grief. Uh, that was probably the hardest thing for providers to cope with. And to give you a sense of the magnitude and why we would feel that way, um, Tom Birch, who's here tonight, um, and will join, join Susan and I um, at the end for questions you might have from him, um, is, um, is with the San Francisco GLTB Historical Society and has done some um, really... And I think impressive work as his colleague Carrie Rodden, who's here tonight, in in showing images that bring the magnitude of the number of deaths home to people. So, in um, the, there was a newspaper. I think it's closed now, called the Bay Area Reporter. No, it's still okay. Bay Area Reporter, gay gay newspaper, and not the only one. <laughs> and uh, that pu started publishing uh, obituaries. And um, over a one-year period, uh, this, these are the obituaries and just the ones for which there were photos. This is just one year. And three or four years later, that number had doubled. This is an, another image, um, the gay men's course in San Francisco, uh, which began in 78. 78 of the, these are, this is a representation of the original members. Uh, the only people who survived the epidemic are the people wearing white. All of the people who were wearing black and turned away died. So at this point... Susan and I are going to talk about the novel. That slideshow was really poignant, uh, and uh, the book gets into a, a lot of that, but obviously from a fictional point of view. I wanted to um, start with a question you've probably heard before, Mark, but that's, um, um, I'll preface it by saying that you've written hundreds, literally, of, of uh, journal articles, abstracts, grant proposals, <laughs> chapters, book chapters, etc. Um, but this is your first novel. Um, so why did you choose to write fiction instead of uh, nonfiction, instead of a historical uh, document or a personal memoir? Um, well, I could say that there's been really outstanding historical books like Randy Schultz and the band played on, um, and, and, and there have been several recent ones. But, but the truth is, is that I, I really didn't have a desire to write uh, a memoir or, or a history um, but I had fantasized uh, as a child, a teenager, um, a young adult, um, about um, writing a novel. I, um, and it was only as a young adult when I began to try and realize that I didn't have the literary skills and I didn't really have um, that much important to say 
um, that um, I decided on a career in medicine. <laughs> it was not my first choice. It wasn't. That's true. And you um, told us you expected to be out of business as an infectious disease doc <laughs> within a limited amount of time. <laughs> well, um, but, but um, I was fortunate enough to find a career in which I had a creative outlet in research and writing. Um, after a couple of decades of that, um, I, I felt like I had done enough of that. And I reached an age in life where um, people think, well, if there's something else I want to do now is the time. And, and that's... And, and, and I had a goal, and that was to show the emotional truth of what it was like to be a physician in the early days of the epidemic. And what about the title, Sensing Light? Um, the prologue explains where the title comes from, and I wonder if you could read a little bit sure. uh, and uh, sure. tell us why you chose that image. At the back of a dusty file drawer in my office are stacks of three-by-five-inch index cards. From 1986 to 2000, each time a patient at San Francisco General Hospital was diagnosed with retinitis, a complication of AIDS we rarely see now, I wrote their name on a blank card and used it to keep track of their medication doses, the extent of their eye damage, and their ability to read letters at 20 feet, or at least count fingers, or see a hand waving across the room, or if nothing else, sense light from dark. My drawer has 620 cards. Most are very short narratives. Nearly all end in death within two years. The few who survived longer were fortunate enough to receive a new generation of anti-HIV drugs that became available in 1996 and allowed their immune systems to recover and stop further eye damage as well as other complications of AIDS. I still see some of these people in clinic today. This book is dedicated to those who did not survive. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually did not pick the title. Um, the, the publisher, uh, the title that I went to the publisher with was um, A Plague, um, which is um, in homage to a, a book that had a big impact on me, Albert Camus' The Plague, which um, is about a bubonic imaginary a bubonic plague um, 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 epidemic that occurs in Algeria. It was written soon after World War II. It was a metaphor for what happened in World War II. And um, the publisher said, no, no. And so we came up with Sensing Light from Dark. And then the uh, distributor said, too sciencey. Two words. It has to be a two-word or one-word title. Mm -hmm. So... There were several options the distributor gave me, and, and one of them was Sensing Light, and that was the one I chose. Do you feel it's the right fit for the book at this point? It, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you want to have your book published and be out in the world, there's, you have to be okay with having limited control over some aspects of it. Yeah. It's a good life lesson, I think. <laughs> um, let's talk a little about, or begin to talk a little about the relationship of fact and fiction as it is in the book. Um, the novel opens in 1979 when a previously healthy 27-year-old young man mm -hmm. uh, who is barely able to breathe sort of stumbles his way into uh, a hospital called City Hospital 
which is recognizably San Francisco General Hospital at the time. It seems to be historically accurate. Um, what about this first patient? Is he based on a true case, a true person? No, not at all. He's an imaginary patient. I'm, I use some experiences um, in creating his persona um, and backstory. I, you know, I drew on personal experiences. I was, I spent a little time in Haight Ashbury in 1968. Um, I have a sister who lives in Fort Worth, Texas, where this character grew up, but he was definitely a mixture of many experiences and not one, mm-hmm. um, not one specific patient. Do you remember your first patient with AIDS, although you <laughs> oh, yes. didn't recognize it? <laughs> Very vividly. Um, this was during my internship. Um, I uh, tra- actually trained at Kaiser in Oakland. I, I wasn't interested in academic medicine after graduating from uh, medical school. Um, that came later. Um, and uh, two weeks after I graduated from medical school, the uh, CDC article that I showed a slide of uh, was published. Um, and I was remotely aware of that. A few months later, I was assigned a patient who had just been put in the ICU and had been diagnosed by an astute pulmonologist as having pneumocystis pneumonia, and he clearly fit the profile of people who had this disease. And for the next month, I managed to keep him alive on a ventilator. Uh, He went into renal failure. Twice a week, I would have to replace a peritoneal uh, catheter to do dialysis because we didn't have at that point in time, hemodialysis at that hospital. And then twice a week, I had to replace uh, an internal jugular venous catheter um, because that was how we could monitor his Mm -hmm. heart failure, which was another complication. So every other day, I was doing an invasive procedure. Uh, I wore gloves. I wore a gown. I was covered with secretions. I nicked myself uncountably times. Um, I never had a deep needle stick. Um, I, I, uh, the support I got from my supervising resident and attending was, good job, Mark, good job. Did you know or think at the time that uh, this person might have an infectious disease? Well, what we knew then was that um, it was most likely an infectious agent but, um, and we knew that the mechanism by which people became immune suppressed was that there was a certain type of lymphocyte that was wiped out. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, no, we didn't, we didn't know. Many people thought that it might be um, a drug that people were using. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a mystery. Yeah. At, at this point in time, from this vantage point, it's, it's startling to hear at how, how much at risk you were in caring for that patient with the needle sticks and all the fluids. And, but that was the way it was then, right? In yeah. caring for patients, And if right? you wanted to be a doctor, you just sucked it up and took those risks. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, at the first time you were at the time you were doing clin- first doing clinical practice, the time we're talking of now, and the time that is reflected in the book, um, everything about HIV was new. It was completely new territory, new knowledge that was accruing. What was it like to be working with a brand new illness, new discoveries, new treatments, new comorbidities? Um, it was in part um, very exciting. 
and it was also frightening. And, and, and I, I, I mean that from the perspective of doing clinical research with these patients, which was what I did the moment I was hired to work at San Francisco General Hospital. Um, it's an incredible privilege to be a physician, to have people entrust their health to you. And it's in some ways, it's an even bigger privilege to do clinical research um, because people have to trust that you're, um, you don't have any secondary gain and that you truly are in equipoise mm -hmm. about whether in a randomized trial, whether treatment A or treatment B is better. And by equipoise, I mean that as an investigator, um, that you don't know whether this is really going to work, the new treatment, whether it's going to be beneficial for sure. There's got to be some scientific basis for doing it or else um, that would be bad. But it could have side effects. It could not be effective. Um, and uh, that, that, uh, that, that was troubling. It was frightening at times. And I, um, I, I mean, I was in equipoise, but it was, it was hard. And there were a lot of risks involved. And, and there were a number of trials in, of, of new agents that harmed people more than helped, way more more than helped. And uh, so I was very aware uh, that that was a possibility okay. in some of the early studies. Mm -hmm. um, the three main protagonists in the, uh, in the book, all of them do clinical investigation as well in different ways. I wonder right. if we can jump to them for a second and, and tell us about those three characters. Just give an overview and we'll come back to them. Okay. So the um, youngest, whose name is Kevin Bartholomew, um, is the um, senior resident when patient first patient in 1979 is admitted to the hospital he is a um, gay man who grew up in South Boston Irish Catholic community um, where it was not okay to be gay um, and came to uh, San Francisco after medical school to become a resident because he felt he couldn't be openly gay and in South Boston and, and, uh, and wanted to be able to do that. Um, second character, second youngest, uh, Gwen, who uh, would be, was, uh, Kevin was about, would be my age now. Uh, Gwen is about five years older. She's a single mother um, who um, has a, a teenage daughter, um, works in a public health clinic in San Francisco and she is or was before this patient was hospitalized his primary care doctor and he had had a number of uh, sexually transmitted diseases that she treated him for. The third character who's another five years older than Gwen is an Asian American man who's the senior pulmonologist at the hospital. His name is Herb Wu. Um, and he's kind of a um, somewhat introverted person and um, has issues um, around survivor guilt because his family got out of Shanghai um, 
just before World War II, and there were some really mass killings that went on there. And, so I, I think our audience is getting the sense that this isn't just about HIV and the hospital and so on. This is really a fully, you know, fully formed characters and uh, backstories, and it's really yeah. a work. It's really a novel, right? I hope so. <laughs> well, this is what you know. This is what so impressed me that Mark Jacobson, you wrote a novel with plot and character. I mean, it's hard to do, to talk about the leaves in your woods and the sunlight coming through and the pager going off and having to go back to the hospital for a sick patient. And it uh, felt very real. I don't know, we all like reading books that are um, relatable to our professional or personal experiences, and this certainly is gripping to everyone I know who's in medicine who has read it. Well, thank you. Um, all of the main characters in different ways have to face HIV not only as frontline clinicians, but also in their personal lives. And this was true of many people who were in San Francisco and in medicine in those years. Um, Two of them actually fear that they themselves may have HIV for different reasons. Uh, And all of them are dealing with very close people in their personal circle who um, have or may have HIV. Um, So how did you take that on as a novelist? And and also, how did you take that on in real life? How did I take yeah. it on in real life? Well, I mean, that was the experience. I mean, I had f- uh, good friends, colleagues who died of AIDS, um, uh, other physicians. Um, the um, it, to to show what that was like in the novel, I drew on my own personal experience, um, that of uh, coworkers who confided how they felt. And um, friends uh, who had um, family members who were at risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was sort of the source material for exploring that in the novel. And the three, uh, not to contradict what I said earlier about it not being all gloomy, but the three central large sections of the book are in order an epidemic, 1981, a plague, 1984, and a holocaust, 1986 very dramatic sequence of right. sort of worsening. Uh, in those years, there were no treatment for HIV, and AIDS usually resulted in death. Right. So what was it like for you, and how did you cope with um, sort of the legions of young people who were losing their sight, getting pneumonia, wasting away, etc.? cetera? Um, for, for me, personally, um, I, I think in some ways it was easier than for many of my colleagues, most, most of the people who were on the front line were gay, lesbian people uh, who chose. And, um, and they are, they, m- the majority of them articulated that they were there out of loyalty to community. Mm-hmm. And that's what motivated them. And so they were driven by that. And, um, and I have to say that... Um, the way that I saw them constructively cope was um, giving and receiving love very directly, and it was very inspiring. Um, I, I, so that was a very positive thing. And for myself, um, I, th- I think it was easier because as soon as I began this work, um, the survivor guilt that I grew up with, my mother was a Holocaust survivor, and everyone in her extended family was exterminated during World War II. Um, th- that just disappeared. 
Um, it's sort of like the, the uh, survivor guilt that I grew up with. And there, were, there was a residue of that. Um, and I never, ever experienced it again after I started working. Um, now, that may seem odd uh, because, well, there are all these people dying. But if you, and, and my mother had the same experience. I mean, because uh, she, um, she became a social worker. And, um, and, it's, and when that happened, she became a very, very happy person. Um, being able to, when, when, why, why, are, why are we here if everybody else is dead? Well, you have to, you have to come up with an answer. Yeah. And, and that was her answer, and it ultimately was my answer for myself. Does that make sense? I want to ask you more about that. Was that through the giving and receiving of love that you referenced? Or was that through service to the... Service, yeah. Service, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that's, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And say more that about... I w- that I wasn't a bystander. Yes. Yeah. And she wasn't a bystander. That's right. That you were fully in, fully Engaged. immersed. Yeah. Fully alive immersed and caring for... Doing something for people who were uh, dying. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Kevin, um, the the youngest of the characters, the first character you described, um, speaking of challenges and dealing with um, uh, uh, the challenges of taking care of people who are, are very ill, he has dual roles, just as a physician and as a gay man, taking care of members of his community. Uh, I know burnout was a big issue for HIV specialists in those years. Uh, and Sensing Light, um, it, there are a few passages in Sensing Light that really um, highlight Kevin's facing the challenges, the emotional challenges that come with sort of one patient after another. And I wonder if you could read a couple of those pa- paragraphs. Oh, okay. That's the um, page 87, I believe. Yeah. So this is um, not so much about burnout, but the um, emotional drain emotional that drain. leads to burnout, for sure. So this, this passage takes place in 1981, the end of 1981. Um, Kevin's finished his residency. He did a fellowship in infectious diseases, and he's been hired to be the aid specialist at, San, at City Hospital, not San Francisco General Hospital. Um, On Wednesdays, Kevin had a morning clinic and came to work early to look in on his hospitalized patients beforehand. The first one was nearing the end of treatment for pneumocystis pneumonia, able to stomach medication by mouth and being weaned from nasal oxygen. He could likely go home tomorrow. 35-year-old investment banker with a private doctor in Pacific Heights, he had never been to City Hospital before collapsing in his office downtown and being brought to the ER by ambulance. The banker was staring at the wall, expressionless, when Kevin peeked into the room. How's it going, said Kevin as he entered. How much time do I have, asked the man in a monotone. A few months, a year. Kevin sat down on the edge of the bed. He had learned by trial and error, it was better to listen first, get a handle on a patient's understanding of his disease and what he feared, then discuss prognosis. But this man's replies to open-ended questions had been, I don't know, up to now. He had shown no curiosity about his condition. Kevin presumed he was reacting to his diagnosis with disbelief and numbness. It can't be happening to me. 
Clearly, he had moved on to the next stage, depression. No, Kevin reconsidered. Anger and bargaining are supposed to occur before depression. The banker was mute, waiting for him to speak. Kevin could not deflect the question and maintain credibility. He had to take a stab at it. Maybe longer, if you're monitored closely, if we get on top of the next infection like this one sooner. That's pathetic. You don't even know what's causing this disease, do you? All you can do is try to treat the complications of having a crippled immune system, right? And mine has already been destroyed, hasn't it? It's not going to get better, so it's just a matter of time, and not much time, and most of it's been feeling shitty, right? Kevin was at a loss. The banker had moved the wrong way, from depression to anger in a blink. These stages of grief weren't as orderly as one would think from reading the literature on death and dying. And patients like this were the most difficult, the ones with penetrating, merciless intellects that turned on themselves and their physicians. The best he could do now was to apologize. I'm so sorry. I can promise we'll do what we can to help you. There is research going on. We might have answers soon. Still refusing to look at him, the banker screamed, I am f He lay down, covered his head with a pillow, and asked Kevin to leave. Across the hall was a patient Kevin knew well. Danny, a 52-year-old denizen of the South of Market bondage and discipline scene. Underneath the metal spikes and chains was a puckish, sweet-tempered man, reconciled to the inevitable. Danny had been admitted the previous night with his third episode of pneumocystis, a severe one. What little was left of his lungs was full of frothy fluid that blocked oxygen from diffusing into his blood. The pulmonologist on call had told Kevin it was futile to put him on a ventilator. Kevin hadn't argued. Danny would die in a few days, no matter what they did. He stood in the doorway, watching Danny's labored breathing. Though he saw morphine dripping into Danny's vein and knew his patient wasn't conscious, Kevin couldn't help but imagine being frantic with air hunger, the desperate compulsion to, smoth to expel smothering liquid inside his lungs, the clawing need to inhale more air, the inability to gratify either urge. He left the ward trying to erase the intrusive picture in his mind of an abandoned car being crushed by a metal compactor. Yowza. Um, and then he goes on to the next patient and the next patient. Yeah. Now, Kevin, going back to the survivor guilt um, topic, Kevin doesn't seem to have a lot of survivor guilt. No. Yeah. Um, um, but I don't think we can kind of explain that without introducing yeah. some spoilers. Yeah. Um, um, Fair enough. You know, people, not everybody in the community that confided in the gay community that who confided confided to me expressed that some people did um, but certain and, and people are different you know mm -hmm. people bring their own history and emotional makeup to how they re react to situations like this sure yeah. sure um, Mark, I'm going to change gears a little bit, but the, the novel begins in 1979 with the first case that comes to City Hospital. and takes up, us up to 1989 with a prologue in 1991. Um, this is the middle of the epidemic, as you um, mm -hmm. showed us in your, in your slide presentation, um, before effective treatment. 
uh, although it ends on a note of hope, um, it's, it's still the middle of the epidemic, and I'm wondering why you ended then. Yes, it ends in the, a very dark time. Yeah. Um, so why did I end there? Well, um, I might not have ended there if I knew what I was doing as a novelist <laughs> when I started writing, <laughs> but I really did not. Um, I just knew that um, um, I, had, I was ready to try to write serious fiction. I really wanted to do that. And so I began by writing uh, some short stories. And, the, uh, f um, and there was only one that was working for me. And um, it, it, it um, took place in 1989 and it involved several of the characters. And, um, and I liked it. I thought it, it, it worked, except it didn't really have a resolution. Mm -hmm. So there was, you know, there was no point in showing it to anybody. Or, um, I didn't really know what to do with it. And then one day I started thinking about what happened to these people in the 10 years, 12 years before uh -huh. this episode? And it just all poured out in my imagination. So, but that had to be the ending. So you first wrote the ending not knowing it was the ending of a novel. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, I'm working on another novel, and um, that is totally structured top down. I mean, I, the plot is completely outlined at chapter level. I'm not going to make that mistake again, but live and learn. Learn from your mistakes. <laughs> Maybe there'll be an epilogue to uh, Sensing Light. We'll see. Not that novel, though. Um, how, how did you balance being true to science and medicine uh, with the process of creating fiction, of writing plot, character setting, etc.? Well, there, there's a synergy um, between um, um, history and, and novel. I mean, there's great historical fiction. There's great literary history, uh, both of which I appreciate immensely read as a reader. Um, and um, I, I took advantage of that. I actually needed that synergy to make this novel work. Um, so, I don't know, does that... I know. And how did yeah. you have the time and the discipline oh, to write a novel? Oh, the time and the discipline. Well, I did not have discipline. I wrote when I um, felt this, when the spirit moved me. I did not have a schedule. Um, I sometimes went months without writing. I, I, began, I began the process in um, 2008, and um, I did the final edit in early 2016. Um, and, and there were, you know, I, when, when, I, when I had the passion, I used every available minute uh, to write. But I also started uh, winding down. I my, totally wound down my research career. I uh, turned over the two NIH grants I had to junior faculty that I was working with and, and gave them carte blanche to determine authorship, uh, first and last, uh, last authors, which is, that's, that's sort of the, uh, um, um, the, the gold currency for academic pro promotion, right? Um, and then um, and a year or two after that, I realized I, I, I was needed 
to work less. And so I actually ask uh, my boss and your boss um, to change my appointment from an academic appointment to a purely clinical one. Because at, at UC, if you have an academic appointment, you have to work 100% time. But if you have a clinical appointment in the medical school, you can work um, 60%, uh, 98%, whatever. Um, and so I cut down to maybe 80 90%, and I had the time. I made the time as a priority. Excellent. Um, what do you want your readers to get or to understand after reading or from reading this, this novel? Um, um, I, I'm hoping that they um, appreciate and find interesting and compelling what the emotional experience of being a physician during that time was like. But um, if there is a take-home message, um, it's the actually the um, what's called the epigram to the novel, which is a quote from uh, Albert, oh, yeah. Albert Camus' uh, Plague. Uh, it's very short. What we learn in a time of pestilence is that there are more things to admire in men than to despise. Mm-hmm. That speaks a lot to what you were saying about the process of taking care of the community, taking care of itself, people taking care of patients in the hospitals. Yeah, interesting. Um, I wanted to go back, Mark, to some of what you were talking about in, in your um, portrayal of the timeline of, of caring for people with HIV and to reflect that um, recognizing and managing HIV require the development of many new tests, new procedures, new medications, uh, new healthcare models, new infrastructure, et cetera. And we, you all, I wasn't there at that time, but we're learning in real time and developing in real time and trying to keep up uh, with HIV. Uh, some of these tests and procedures took many years to develop at the expense of many lives lost. Um, but uh, just taking one example, and that's the HIV viral load, can you tell us what the development of that single test meant to uh, the care of HIV people? Sure. So now we're getting into the sciencey part of yeah. this. Okay. Um, but um, I, I, I don't know that the general public really appreciates how how huge this blood test that can quantify the amount of virus circulating in the blood was to developing effective therapy. So remember we had, um, the first drug was developed in, and was, became available in, in 1987, AZT. Um, DDI was the second drug a couple of years later. Um, and the third one was uh, DDC, which was um, licensed and began being distributed in, I think, 92. Um, so these three drugs all belong to the same class. Um, and we had really no sensitive way to tell how well they were working. We knew that there was clinical benefit because when we started a patient on one of these drugs, their T cells would rise. They would become healthier. But then, after six months to a year, their T cells would drop. We assumed they were, the virus was becoming resistant to that drug. And that was actually turned out to be a very correct assumption. Um, but these drugs were all of the same class, and um, 
by the early 90s, people thought, well, maybe we could combine two of them in, in, in people who are in really bad shape. And, and, and there were some trials done, and it, it showed some benefit. But when the viral load tests became available, we learned that all kinds of three-drug combinations took the viral load from whatever, 50,000, 100,000 copies per milliliter of plasma to undetectable and durably undetectable for months, for years. And um, I, I have little doubt that if, if we had that tool in 1992 and somebody had done a study and they had just treated 10 patients with AZT, DDI, and DDC combined, um, there would have been some toxicity issues about doing that in terms of nerve damage, but just 10 patients, I suspect that at least eight of them would have gone to undetectable and stayed undetectable, and that basically never happened for longer than a few weeks with monotherapy, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there were new drugs that were developed, new classes of drugs um, that that were developed at the same time that this uh, viral load monitoring technique became available. That was just sort of, uh, you know, synchronous, and you know, uh, it just happened that way. So everybody thought that, huh, oh, the new classes of drugs are doing it. But what it really was is we learned how to sequence the drug targets in the virus, the enzymes that the mm -hmm. drugs target, and understood resistance. Um, better, we realize that if you put enough pressure so that the virus has to mutate into um, a strain that really has poor fitness, you can control this disease. Yeah, that's, and that's our understanding now. We wouldn't have ever had that understanding without the viral right. load. Yeah. Right. So um, you see the scientist and Mark coming out. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, it's 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 probably hard to overstate the impact that HIV had on the fabric of San Francisco in the 80s and 90s. I mean, we lost a generation of gay men in particular. Um, but it's also hard to overestimate probably the impact that HIV has had on medicine, right? Mm -hmm. And speaking about the viral load test is one aspect of that. But uh, many new uh, fundamental discoveries and many new uh, techniques and approaches to other infections and other aspects of medicine arose out of HIV. And um, I wonder if you could comment on that, well, on either aspect of that, actually, the impact of HIV. Oh, on um, let's see. I can think of one, three, three things yeah. that were, um, and these were positive things, I mean, at huge cost, but that have changed medicine. So, um, and not all of them were, solely due to HIV, but but certainly um, the role of activists was indubitably started with HIV, and it very quickly spread to other disease entities, breast cancer, you know, Susan Komen March, and, um, um, and, and the whole attitude that uh, the, the patient is a partner, not a passive, uh, obedient, um, but the patient is engaged in deciding uh, care. Uh, that that really started with the with the AIDS epidemic and and how treatment was rolled out and um, 
uh, AIDS was sort of the uh, AIDS and cancer were the diseases that patient-centered care as a m model, so that you know it's not just about um, life exten extension; it's about quality of life. Um, that that AIDS played a huge role, not the only role, as a disease in in moving that forward in the culture of medicine. Um, let's see. Well, those are two. What was the third? Um, activism, patient-centered care, regulate, drug regulation yeah. is the third. Yeah. So um, the FDA was pretty much a rubber stamp organization, federal agency, until the early 50s when the thalidomide catastrophe occurred. And then the FDA went to the other extreme, perhaps, by requiring tr tremendous amount of animal data, human data, before a new drug could be approved. Um, and, and that was good, uh, but it was a problem when it was a drug that was for a fatal disease and people were dying. Um, and the FDA responded to the pressure. Um, they, um, they, they facilitated uh, compassionate use access to drugs before they were um, um, licensed to be sold, and AZT was the very first example of that, pretty much. And there were some there were some other ways that you could get, uh, um, but but these were drugs that had been around for a really long time, and and no pharmaceutical company wanted to to, to market them. Yeah. Interesting. And um, you're still in the clinic after more than 30 years. And what, what keeps you doing clinical care for people with HIV? You do. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's you and uh, all of your colleagues who are your age and younger are, are such nice people. You're so, you're so, <laughs> you're so, I'm not, I'm not, not saying this to be, to, to flatter you. Um, um, when I started my career, in academic medicine, the ethos was um, encouraging competition. The ethos now is encouraging collaboration. Mm -hmm. The ambience back then was social Darwinism. <laughs> the ambience now is it takes a village. It has changed dramatically. And, and that's um, and so the the people that I'm working with, like you and many other of our colleagues, and, and they're all younger than me. Most of them, 20 or 30 years younger than me, are incredibly smart and incredibly kind people. And I like being around you. <laughs> it's 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 inspiring to me. It's inspiring to me. Well, excellent. And likewise, it's inspiring to be around you, Mark. What about the patients? Um, the patients... Are they different than the... the I'm patient, sorry? Are they different than the patients in years past? Oh, my are they? gosh, yes, yes. We are de dealing with a very different um, patient population now. Uh, it's, it's in some ways more challenging. Um, that In some ways less challenging because it's not a fatal disease anymore. But... Um, when I in, when I joined uh, the program in 1986, um, the vast majority of our patients were gay men who 
had jobs. Many of them were professionals. Uh, many of them were very smart and knew what was going on. Um, it, it was not a disease of predominantly of, of the underclass, although there were some patients who were part of the underclass. Now it's a disease almost exclusively of the underclass in terms of poverty of, or people who have mental illness or people who uh, have substance abuse issues. There is almost always one of those three social problems or psychiatric problems um, that are really key. Um, and being a doctor in Ward 86, our, our HIV clinic now, is half being a social worker, isn't it? Um, yes, I'd say so. <laughs> <laughs> and we have wonderful social workers. Yeah, yeah, it's very different. Yeah. Um, and still really compelling and engaging. It, and it is, but it's a different kind of challenge. And it's one that yes. I can embrace. Um, and, I, and I like working with, with patients. And, you know, they, they're, they're appreciative. What is your, your longest lived uh, patient? How, how, what is the longest period of time you've been working with? There someone? was one patient who I had for, um, well, now there are several, 20 years. Actually, there are quite a few. Yeah. 15 to 20 years. Yeah, impressive. Yeah, yeah we love that. Yeah. I think we have a, a moment maybe to talk about the last section. I think it's the chapter that you referenced that you wrote first. Right. Um, it takes place in, um, in Berlin at an AIDS conference in 1989. Several of the characters go to that conference uh, just as the Berlin Wall happens right. to fall. Right. Uh, and thousands of East Germans are pouring into uh, the West. Um, so is that true to real events? And why did you... Why was that the ending of the novel? Well, it was really the, the ending of the, of the novel, novel because it was where I started in terms of trying to write a short story. And, and um, I was actually there and uh, kept a diary uh, while I was there. I had been invited to give a talk at a meeting that was scheduled to take place the, uh, to begin the morning after the wall opened that late that night. And I had, um, I had come early, a day early, so that I could explore Berlin. Berlin is actually where my mother was born. Um, and I found places that she had lived as a, as a, as a child and, uh, um, and then went to this um, dinner for the uh, international faculty um, that was at the top of a hotel um, suite. And uh, it was about 11 o'clock at night. Um, this is a scene in, in the book, but it was an incredibly dramatic event. This, this uh, man uh, runs into the room and shouts, and Germans don't shout. And Germans, I mean, I, I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but, but the Germans that I know that are my peers are, they're a little reserved. You know, they don't, they don't use their hands when they're talking so much. They, they're they're even-tempered. Um, and and he was shouting, and then people were like screaming and crying, and and I finally found out from somebody that the wall had it hadn't come down, but that they that the government had just given up, mm. and they were letting people come through. The next morning, there were thousands and thousands of people, um, in all wearing this dull gray 
clothes. There were no there were no color. There was no color in what they were wearing. And they were driving these fiberglass tiny cars. <laughs> they were called Trevis, Travants. Um, and and they were looking at shop windows. They were wide eyed. It was an incredible experience. Um, and so there was enough drama there to write a short story, and um, and it, and I thought it worked in the novel. Excellent. And um, that's um, without giving anything away. A note of optimism. There's a note of optimism, um, or a note of mm, light, coming yeah. into the ending of the novel. And you'll have to read it to know what I mean by that. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I, I, I'm an optimistic person in spite of how discouraging recent events are. Um, um, and, and, and that optimism is not a Pollyanna. I mean, I, in, in my lifetime, um, uh, I've seen Martin Luther King's vision come true. The moral arc of the universe has bent toward justice compared to the world that I grew up in, that I was a little boy in. <laughs> um, it was not okay to be gay. Black people lived in a very confined ghetto. I mean, it was almost a concentration camp. I, I grew up in the South. Um, the, this, this world has changed. I mean, we've had a, a setback, but I think it's temporary. Uh, let's hope you're uh, predicting the future, Mark. So let's um, end yeah. our conversation there, if this is a good point. And well, let's take questions from the audience. Yeah, great. Yeah. All right. The question was, what is, uh, now that there are all these people who have HIV and who, in whom the medication is working in terms of preventing them from dying of these fatal complications, um, what unique issues do they have as they become our age, my age, your age? Um, that is the number one uh, priority in terms of d program development in our clinic. We raised a lot of money to begin a geriatrics uh, program. We have a trained geriatrician. Um, there, there are a lot of problems. They're both medical and um, psych psychological. I, I have collected a number of patients who are in their 60s and several who are in their 70s. And um, most of them are coping with isolation, a lot of isolation, um, psychologically. And um, th despite the ability to um, control the virus, there's still some problems with the immune system that aren't, aren't corrected in many people, which lead to sort of systemic inflammation, which leads to an increased risk of stroke and heart attack and kidney failure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's, it's, it is right in the center of our radar screen, that issue. Uh, let me try and repeat just the, the essence of that question, which I think is, um, in the pre-modern antiretroviral era, before 1996, when the death rates were very, very high here, um, it was obvious why people were passionate about activism, passionate about creating new treatments. Now that it's not necessarily a fatal disease, um, and we're dealing with people who have other comorbidities, um, 
disenfranchised, right. How do we uh, get fired up? Um, well, a lot of our f- colleagues, uh, probably the majority of them, spend a lot of time in resource-limited countries um, trying to, because it's a different story in Southeast Asia, in Cambodia, in, in um, India, and, and in Sub-Saharan Africa most of all. Uh, so a lot of that energy goes there, um, and and if you spend time there, and I I I spent a month in Kenya mentoring Kenyan clinicians, and it's easy to understand um, um, how, how how you could get fired up. I mean, there are lots of infants who are infected still, um, so that's one way. And 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 then the other thing is is that. Our program just seems to be a magnet for incredibly altruistic people. <laughs> so there's this vibe um, of uh, of of selflessness and and you know enthusiasm about social justice and stuff. It's you know and it, I don't have to work now. I mean I'm I'm actually retired, but I still work part time, um, and, and I re, and I work because. These people fire me up. Um, there's a book that just came out that um, <laughs> I think everybody should know about. It's called The Knowledge Illusion. Um, and it explains how we got into this pickle with the current administration, that, that people think that they know way more than they really do know. And I don't know enough about uh, political mechanisms and change to have an answer to your question about how to how to change society to um, I mean I, I, I I'm, you asked about what can we do about the larger social question the disenfranchised I mean I I think that those you know trust people who are, are knowledgeable and I'm not one of those people Tom as a historical person having paid a lot of attention to HIV especially in San Francisco do you see an arc of Activism, sort of, how has that been over time? Well, from from my standpoint, um, the um, the success of the drugs that have been developed, including Truvada, which now basically is almost almost a get out of jail free card. Um, so, if you are not HIV positive but you take Truvada. Um, there's very limited chance of you becoming HIV positive. Um, If you take it religiously, and those of us who have been taking drugs religiously for 30 years, um, we're good at taking our drugs, but you're absolutely right. If it's only one pill that you're taking and it's your happy pill so that you can go out and have unprotected sex, sometimes people take it it the night before, and you've got to take it every day. Um, But... My perspective really is from uh, the gay community's uh, standpoint. And um, I just want to say, if you haven't read the book and you haven't bought the book, buy the book. Uh, I'm not through. I I showed uh, Mark my Kindle has got 73% uh, of the book read. And um, it's hard for me to read that book because I lived it. I knew the people who had retinitis. I knew the people... um, I um, uh, what I think that the big the easiest way for me to answer your question is um, this has been about 
probably close to eight or nine years ago, uh, I sing with the Gay Men's Chorus, and that picture of the, the membership uh, facing backwards, I was in that picture. Um, I was facing backwards, I was one of the dead ones. Um, the chorus has uh, what we call the fifth section. So in a, in a men's chorus, you have first and second tenors, baritones, and basses. Um, and we have a fifth section, which is the people who are no longer on stage. And for many years, we have had an equal number of fifth section members as we have on stage. So we sing with 300 members now. We have 288 people who have died. And of those 288, probably 270 died of AIDS. Um, so I was, we, we have a break in the middle of rehearsal, and I was walking past a group of young guys, and it was early in the uh, rehearsal period when we bring in new members. We tell them the story of the chorus. We, we tell them about the fifth section. So there's four or five 20-somethings talking, and as I'm walking by, I hear one of them say to another, gee, they've, they've got all this um, uh, concentration on the fifth section and the people have died of AIDS. And um, I, I personally don't even think I know anybody who's HIV positive. And I walked up to him and I shook his hand and I said, hey, I'm Tom Birch and I've been here a long time and I'm HIV positive. So now you know somebody and probably about a third of the chorus is still HIV positive over these years. So this is, this is not only your, the answer to your question, getting people fired up about, um, about protection, protecting themselves and things that they can do to increase their, uh, th the length of their lives and the quality of their lives. Um, this isn't, this is now no longer, um, uh, restricted to the AIDS epidemic. I mean, this is this is any kind of destructive behavior that you're doing. Uh, I'm sure three quarters of us, or ninety percent of us in this room, just go bananas if you see anybody lighting up a cigarette who's under forty. I mean, the the notices have been on the, those packs, you know, ever since I've been twenty years old, and people are still smoking. Why are they smoking? Why are they engaging in these behaviors? Um, as Mark said, these are, these are social, social questions that we're not capable of answering and, and I, don't know who, I don't know who is. Um, that, that reminds me that uh, I wanted to just add on to this question about um, you know, what, what, fires, what fires me up. Um, um, I've learned a lot about a technique that's called motivational interviewing, and uh, it's it's a way of helping people to understand smoking. For example, it's perfect for smoking. I've had some amazing successes using this with helping people to stop smoking. And smoking combined with HIV is very very bad because it's kind of a synergistic uh, hit to the heart and to the brain vessels. And so that was very cool to learn this technique and use it. You know, this was therapeutic for me. I, I have to admit that um, we didn't, I, I kind of dodged that and I shouldn't have. You were kind of hinting at like, how did you cope, you know, I mean, with, with fear? And, and the way that I coped was I totally suppressed it. I mean, I just didn't let it out. 
um, and um, I had some nightmares. Uh, and the and in 1984, when the antibody t tests came out, uh, people who had medical care, uh, healthcare workers who um, had at-risk exposures, were the first people tested, and we had to wait two weeks before we could get the result, and it had to be given by a counselor, and that was hard, yeah. you know. But um, so I just suppressed it all. And in writing this book, it all came out. And there would be times when I'd be writing and I'd have tears in my eyes, and that's actually not, not a good way to write. But, but, but it was good. It was therapeutic for me. It was. And, but that's only one person's experience. All right. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Being Thank with you. you for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.